So I'm wondering what you think of the Ten Commandments. Ask a friend. Ask an enemy. Ask a family member. Ask a stranger. What's your opinion about the Ten Commandments? What do you think about the Ten Commandments? Or maybe in the 21st century we're supposed to say, how do you feel about the Ten Commandments? But you get the idea. You'll get a lot of different responses. I imagine you'll get some interesting responses. You probably will get to know where someone's coming from pretty quickly based upon the response. What do you think about the Ten Commandments? Well, let me just jump ahead a little bit and say, based upon good authority, based upon the New Testament, uh, the Ten Commandments, wait for it, are good. The New Testament says the law is good. So as a Christian, I know uh, the Ten Commandments are law, and the Bible says clearly in the Old and New Testament, the law is good. And so if you ask me, what do you think of the Ten Commandments? I probably would start by saying, well, I think they're good. I think they're true. I think they're right. Uh, so the law is good. But we also have to remember and know and we have it on good authority that while the Ten Commandments as law are good, the Ten Commandments as law are not good news to sinners in need of salvation. It's important that we know that. I'll say it again. It's important that we know that while the law is good, the Ten Commandments would be an example. While the law is good, the law is not good news to sinners in need of salvation. Keep that in mind. Today we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at it, uh, look at them in their natural habitat, which would be the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. But as you're maybe finding Exodus chapter 20, and we're studying the book of Exodus together as a church, because so much of the New Testament expects that we know, even as Christians, the themes in the Old Testament, especially Exodus. That's why we're studying it, one of the reasons. But I want you to hear something from Galatians chapter 3 to back up what I was just saying so that we have it clear in our mind. The law is good, righteous, and holy, but the law is not good news to sinners in need of salvation. So hopefully you're going to find Exodus chapter 20 to be ready for our study today. If you're just joining us, I think you'll catch right on and fit right in. But do listen to what the Apostle Paul, writing under inspiration by the Holy Spirit, says in Galatians 3.10 and following. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you attempt to approach God and to be accepted by God based upon your obedience to the law, it's never going to lead to salvation. Even though God's law is good, you're not. And you're not good at keeping God's law. And you have to keep God's law perfectly, personally and perpetually, if you're going to be in a right relationship with God based upon law. Galatians goes on to say, this is 3.11. Now it is evident that no one is justified or declared perfect or declared righteous before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, 
This is why you need to trust in Christ. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, so that we might receive, that's gift terminology, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, faith in Christ. So I just wanted to lay that all out from the very beginning. Let's acknowledge the law is good. It's true. It's right. But it's not going to get anyone to heaven because we're sinful and so we're not good at law keeping. So what happens is we come face to face, face with God's law and we can say that's right. That's true. And I hope that happens here today. We can say that's right. That's true. That's commendable. That's virtuous. That, sh- that should be what we do. That should have been what Israel did. In chapter 19, Israel, even before the commandments were given, they said, we will do it. And we know they won't. We know we don't. Even if we're not the nation of Israel, we are also under God's law to do what's right. Even if it comes in a different form, we're we're obligated to do what's right. And, And we might say, we'll do it. But remember Galatians 3. Remember, Jesus came to save his people from their sins, their lack of obedience to God's law. And then what we can do, if we look to Christ and we trust in Christ, we can also, again, say the law is good, the law is righteous, the law is holy. I'm not depending on it to gain eternal life, but I'm depending upon Jesus who fulfilled the law on my behalf to gain eternal life for me. That's why we say justification comes by faith and only by faith. Well, that's maybe the best sermon I've ever preached, and we haven't even gotten to the text, uh, I hope. But we are going to do Exodus 20 today, so I hope you're ready. Um, it's a preacher's dream. Guess what the outline's going to be? <laughs> today we'll be looking at the Ten Commandments <laughs> that come from God. <laughs> so it's pretty easy to outline. Uh, we'll see how many of them we get done. Uh, some of them we'll do super quickly. It's meant to be simple. So this is just the opening, and then he's going to get into the details later. But each of these Ten Commandments is meant to be super simple, so you can capture the idea. And then as we move on in Exodus, and also in Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's the unpacking of this law detail specific to the nation of Israel. But the generality, the the essence of the law is true for everybody in these Ten Commandments. Okay, hope you're ready. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. And the word translated words is a word that's used for treaties. It's a covenant word. Okay, so in the ancient world, the word that's used here, God speaks a covenant word. God speaks a treaty kind of word. So there's going to be this formal kind of relationship between God, the great king, and the people of Israel. So it's formal. It's binding. We should be anticipating law. God is going to say, since I'm the great king who redeemed you out of Egypt, I provided for you. You know about me. You know how powerful I am. You know I can protect you. You know I can provide for you. Here's what you're going to need to do. Okay, so this is treaty talk. This isn't the first time something like this has ever happened. This is common in a good sort of way. Saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So I am the Lord. I am the sovereign. I am Yahweh. And I am not only that, I am your God. I'm your sovereign. I'm your Lord. I am your God based upon the fact that I'm the creator. 
I'm the only God. We're going to get into that. But not only that, I'm also your God by virtue of the fact I'm the creator, sovereign over all. But also I'm your God because I redeemed you. I rescued you. And so there, there, there is obligation. I've been good to you. I've been kind to you. I've shown you my power. And already, friends, this should remove any kind of questioning. Like, well, what right does he have to impose commandments on those people? It's already diffusing that, even if you didn't notice. He has every right to impose commandments on these people because he's the creator God. And not only that, he's sovereignly chosen them. Not only that, he's done something wonderful for them. He's freed them from slavery. And so it would be the wrong question to say, what right does he have? He's he's already addressed that, even by saying who he is. He has every right to call for obedience. Now, commandment number one, no doubt, it's the most important in a certain sense. It's the first one on purpose. And notice what it says in verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. Emphatically stated with the strongest of statements in no uncertain terms, I, as the one and only true living God, call for your allegiance. No other gods. They're familiar with other gods because they've just been in Egypt where even Pharaoh is a god. And they have all kinds of gods for all different kinds of things. And now they're in the wilderness and there's going to be the Canaanite, the Canaanites have gods and all the other ites have gods. Gods upon gods upon gods. Statues upon statues upon statues. And Yahweh, the one true living God who called himself I am, on purpose, in part earlier for shock value, so as to make the point, he didn't say I am the God of water, I am the God of fire, I am the God of prosperity, I am the God of fertility, I am the God of... No, he just said when they wanted to know his name, I am. And it's a mic drop moment. I'm not going to finish the statement because I'm the God who's unlike all the other gods. I'm the only true living God. I, I, I am. Distinct. Radically so. Not comparable. And so here, have no other gods. If I recall correctly, you could even literally translate it before my eyes. In my presence. And not as in, so you better hide them in the basement. <laughs> As in, I'm the all-knowing, all-wise God, and it would be really dumb and stupid for you to pretend like there are other ones, because guess what? There aren't any other ones. There aren't any other ones. And since I've done this for you, and you've come to grips with my power and who I am, I need you to act like monotheists, because monotheism is the only thing that's actually true. And we could do a whole study on this. Isaiah 44, 6, besides me, there is no God. So have no other gods, because guess what? In reality... There aren't any other ones. I love it that over and over again throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, he's called the living God. Deuteronomy 5.26, 2 Corinthians 6.16, Acts 14.15. God and God alone is the living God. Oh, we can make statues out of marble and out of wood and out of clay and all kinds of other things. We can paint paintings of gods and deities. There's only one living God. And so it would be right. It would be good. It would be good for you. And it would be good for other people for you all to act sane. Insane people don't do good things for themselves. 
They don't do good things for others. Let's be spiritually sane. He, he's not trying to be the, the cosmic killjoy to get rid of everybody's creativity and fun. He's saying, be real. And you of all people, because of what I've done for you, have no other gods. And think about how hard this might be. Maybe if your parents created carved images, maybe your parents' parents did, maybe your parents' parents' parents, you get the idea. Passed down from generation to generation. And you know what? You love your grandpa. And you love your grandmother and your great-grandmother. And this is a family heirloom. It would be hard. It would be countercultural for this to happen. But it would be true and right and good to have no other gods because, remember, there aren't any other gods. And he's proven that to these people. He's not trying to ruin their fun. He's trying to help them be in touch with reality. And now be able to do what human beings have been made to do. Ultimately, to give honor to the one true and living God because there's only one true and living God. What's mean-spirited about that? Nothing. That's good. That's positive. That's the right thing. So, it's good that this is the first commandment. God is authoritative. God is wise. He's for His people. And it would be crazy for us to say things like, or think things like, who does he think he is? Well, who he thinks he is, is the one true and living God. And he's helping people to be in touch with reality. The first of the Ten Commandments is good. It's definitely good. It might force you, if you're an Israelite, to say, I was wrong. And not only that, maybe people I've loved have been wrong. But it's good to be in touch with what's true and right. It will lead to human flourishing and prosperity and goodness. Let's move on. You see why that one should be the, the first one, right? If, the, if, this is, if, the, if that's not true, the other ones are kind of like, who made these up? Why would, I, would I, why would I feel obligated to these things? doesn't even make sense. Okay, let's move on. Number two, second commandment. Complimenting the first. It's in relationship to worship and how you respond. How about, how about verse four? You shall not make for yourself. It's, it's even, the word therefore isn't there, but it's by implication. You shall, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. No images, no carvings. No renditions. And again, this would have been countercultural for what they've experienced. And, and now it's got to stop. It needs to stop. It needs to stop because God is spirit. John chapter 4, Jesus said God is spirit. God in his very essence, the, the essence of who God is, it, you, you can't draw a picture. And if you do draw a picture, by necessity, it will be perverted. Because God is a spirit. You can't draw a spirit. So if you carve an image to say, well, God is kind of like, no, he's not. So by definition, let's use a big theological label uh, on purpose that's offensive. It's blasphemous. To blaspheme means to lie. Any portrayal, any physical 
portrayal of God is blasphemous by definition because God is spirit. It can, it, it's, it's somehow lying about God because that's not who God is. This, this is, this is hard hitting. I know it. But if there's only one true God, the living God, and he by definition is spirit, no carvings. Oh, let's think about this further. He's the creator of all creation, all things. And so when you somehow carve or paint or etch a thing and somehow use it as a worship help, you're confusing categories. God's distinct from his creation. He's the eternal one. He's spirit. And now we're somehow making God something that he's not. We're, we're telling lies about God with our images and our paintings. So let's not tell lies about God. Let's not do that. Now, some might object and say, well, but, but it, it helps. It just helps me to have a picture. A blasphemous picture that lies about God? You need help, but you need help to get over thinking you need helps. Because by definition, it ends up being idolatrous. No pictures, no icons. You could use that word too. They're blasphemous. They're lying by definition because of who God is and who, how He's distinct from His creation. Now think about it. Sometimes we, we, we're sincere. I really think it would help. People are sincere. I can appreciate that. We shouldn't be insincere and right. <laughs> but, but, It's possible to be sincerely wrong. No images, no carvings, no etchings. The idea is no paintings, no renditions. We're talking about the God who is the I am, the the transcendent one who, who, who is different. In just a little while, in verse 5, we're not quite there yet, he's going to liken... Not obeying this, it says, those who hate me. So see, it doesn't make sense for me to say, I love God, the one true and living God. And if I just have the icons, it helps me. No, it's a reflection, actually, he's going to say, of hating him. Whoa. Some of you came here today thinking you're going to hear an uplifting sermon. It's uplifting. We've got to get in touch with reality, right? God's not doing this to somehow oppress the people. He's saying, I want you to know me. I want you to know who I am. And I'm not like the gods of the nations. I'm not like any of the ites gods. I'm different. And I want to set you free to do the right thing. It will be best for you. It will be best for the nation of Israel. It will be most glorifying to me. It will be best for your neighbor. I want to help you with this. Even if the medicine goes down hard, even if it's a hard pill to swallow, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm for you. In other words, I redeemed you out of slavery. Don't go back into the slavery and somehow it's no half idolatry, half one true living God, Yahweh stuff. No, I've already shown you that I care. Here is. The 1689 confession elaborating on this that we utilize around here from a historic biblical perspective, church history perspective. I quote, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by God himself. 
and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. So there's a long history of no visible representations. And it didn't start in 1689. They're drawing upon what God even said in his basic commandments. Okay, we better keep moving. Number, we're still on the same commandment, but verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So there's no genuflecting. There's no adoration. uh, For, here's the reason, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So there's a reason. Because I'm a jealous God. It's actually a word that's used elsewhere for marriage. So it would be right and fitting for a spouse to be jealous for their spouse's love. I I don't want to share my spouse's love with a stranger or even a friend. Because there's there's loyalty here. It's what we signed up for. I'm yours and you're, you're mine. That, that was the, the, the agreement. And so that would be a good kind of jealousy, a righteous kind of jealousy. But, but even the best, most godly person, right, has mixed motives, but God doesn't. He has perfect jealousy for his bride, his people, the Israelites. And so he's jealous. I, you shouldn't give my glory to another. I, I'm your, I'm your only husband, in other words. It doesn't even make sense. Don't do that. I can remember one famous talk show host, influencer in, in, in our world, just, just mocking this and making fun of this because she grew up in church. Oh, and just, I, I'm not even going to try to imitate her, but how ridiculous, how puny, how trite any God would be to say, I am a jealous God. You know what kind of God would say, I'm a jealous God? The kind of God who alone is the one true and living God. Let's push it a little bit. If God is not jealous, then he doesn't make any sense. It would be immoral. It would be wrong. It would be contradictory for him to not be jealous. Now, if there were two gods... Then he, then he shouldn't be jealous. If there were three, if there were 300, 300 million, you get the idea. If there's only one God, we all, by rational intuition and command, should worship him and him alone. And for him to not be jealous if we don't do it and we don't do it the right way would actually be for him to be wrong. It's, it's logical. It makes sense. And here's how serious the matter is. It says in verse 5, if we go on, if this doesn't happen, here's, here's the fallout. Visiting the iniquity or the sin of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations, generation, excuse me, of those who hate me. So it's not only, only going to be bad for you, it's going to be bad for your family, and it's going to be a lasting bad for your heritage. It's going to be bad for your community. It's going to be bad for others. If you sin like this, the whole community is affected, is the idea. Verse 6, but showing steadfast, here, here's the positive, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
It doesn't make sense. God's, God's special covenant, loyal love, just treat me like I'm God and like I alone am God. Be reasonable, reasonable, logical, and, and there's such great blessing involved. But on the other side, you just need to know that it's not only going to affect you. It's going to affect your family, and it's going to affect your community, and it's going to affect them in a lasting sort of bad way. Which one makes sense? It's pretty obvious which one makes sense. I'm not sure if we're going to get all ton of, ten of these done today, but I'm, I'm still somewhat optimistic. Now, before we move on to the next one, though, um, since we do live in Omaha, Nebraska, and if we, since we live in Omaha, Nebraska, lots of you, many of you, I don't know about lots, but based upon how many of you I've met and talked to and based upon Omaha demographics, some of you, maybe lots of you, um, maybe are confused why the second commandment read the way it did. And I'm saying that because if you were raised Roman Catholic, and there are lots of Roman Catholics in Omaha, Nebraska, lots of you have come out of that kind of background. I love Roman Catholics. But you might have heard that is not right because if you grew up memorizing the Ten Commandments, you memorized it differently. First commandment, according to the catechism, I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange gods before me. That sounded the same as ours. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That, that's not what we just read in Exodus 20. Hmm. wonder why. Probably... Because when your practice uses icons and paintings and images and adores them, you have a problem when you're training the children with the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 because it says don't do that. And so they're written down differently. So I don't say that to be mean-spirited. I say that to say I think Exodus 20 is right. Fascinating though. Maybe an inconvenient truth. I love Roman Catholics, but I do not love Roman Catholicism. I remind you now, we're going to get to the golden calf. I'm moving on from Roman Catholicism. We're going to get to the golden calf in chapter 32. And this text will be relevant. It's not going to take Israel very long to go from chapter 19. We will do it. And it's going to be so gross and so perverse and so ludicrous. It's not even funny. Sinners have a good law given to them, but they're not good at keeping it. And so they need good news of salvation from a good law keeper. Ultimately, it's going to be Christ. We'd better move on to the third commandment. Third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Vain would mean frivolous. It would mean insincere. It would mean thoughtless. It could be unreal. But the idea is lightly. 
So it would seem to include any kind of nonchalant, casual, without thinking, light-hearted reference to God. In light of the fact that we've learned God is the great I am, the self-existent one, the transcendent one, the one who is the, the only living one, the one who's different from all the idols. And so when we say God and we talk about God, we shouldn't be speaking lightheartedly, without thinking, casually. When we're talking about God, we're talking about the, the, the greatest topic of all. And so we should choose our words carefully. That's, that, that's the essence of the idea. We should be thinking about who he actually is. So would that include vulgar language? Sure. But that's maybe like last on my list. Because it would also include careless speech regarding God. Careless theological comments. It would also include speaking under oath insincerely. It would also include professing faith in him insincerely. It could include all sorts of things. Don't take his name lightly. Don't take his name in vain is the idea. We're talking about the greatest subject matter of all. Fear and reverence. Awe. Grandeur. Let's use our words carefully when we're talking about the one who's God. And sure, I'm not going to use God's name when I'm swearing. That would be bad and wrong. That would be dumb. But you know what? When we only limit it to that, we're we're probably missing things that are even dumber, (laughs) more crazy. When you talk about God, be careful because of who we are talking about. And he's revealed himself. He's made himself known. It's not like he just showed up and said, it's up to you guys to talk about me however you want. He shows up, yes, and he speaks So don't take his name in vain. Yahweh, what is Yahweh like? Well, let's be careful about when we say what he's like. When you speak of me, speak appropriately. When you speak to me, speak appropriately. When you take an oath, do so sincerely. And let me remind you that so many of these things that are put in the negative are put in the negative, yes, but they're put in the negative to protect something positive. We're talking about the greatest topic ever. Wow, what a joy it is to know God, the one who redeemed us. What a delight it is to know what's true about God and not be fumbling around in the dark, guessing, trapped in idolatry. What a good thing it is to know God and therefore to be careful to not take his name in vain. Let's move on to number four, a fourth commandment. And the fourth commandment reads... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sorry, I was distracted. It's hard when the preacher's preaching is getting texts from the congregation, not even about the sermon. <laughs> Got to turn those off. Thank you for your text, though. <laughs> I think there should be a commandment about that. (laughs) About iPads. Thou shalt not preach from iPads. Maybe that would be good. (laughs) Fourth commandment. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath means rest. Shabbat. 
So we've got the Sabbath rest, the special day, the last day. Remember to keep it holy. Holy means separate, distinct, special, not ordinary. So there is one day where it should be special. Your rest day should be guarded. And if you've been with us, if you haven't been with us, I'll I'll just let you know. But if you've been with us, he's already talked about the Sabbath. He's already talked about the Sabbath with Israel, even before it's encoded in the Ten Commandments. It's important, which is kind of fascinating and interesting. Uh, But let's go ahead and keep reading. It says in verse 9, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, is a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Later in the book of Exodus and in other books of the Bible, he's going to unpack even more things regarding the Sabbath. But right now it's sort of big picture, 10 commandments, We'll elaborate later. But let me at least ask you this question. So what's the basis for this again? Why do this? And we could answer it with multiple answers. Well, first of all, it's tied to God and creation. So we would say, why, why should they do the Sabbath? Because they should imitate God. Uh, he's the creator. And they're creators because they're made in his image. And they're called to do things like have dominion over. And so oh, we, Im- imitating God is one reason they should do this. It's a pattern from creation. Uh, another reason would be to, to remember their redemption. See, they were enslaved with no Shabbat. They were enslaved, work, 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 and I'm going to make your work even harder, tyrannical Pharaoh says. No Shabbat, no rest. God redeems them. And now they have rest. Remember your redemption, and you're going to rem- remember your redemption by keeping Sabbath. I know that's true, by the way, because Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15 says so. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day, and it's tied to you were brought up out of Egypt. So, okay, God is a Sabbath-taking God, if you will. Um, Also, we were redeemed out of never having rest to having rest, and so that's another reason why they should do this. We could also elaborate and say it would be good for them to have rest, It'd be good for other people, right, to have rest. That would be another reason. Let me ask you this question. Was this a punishment? No, it wasn't a punishment. It was actually something good and right, positive, to rest. <laughs> Out of slavery where you don't get a rest and now you get a rest and remember that God is the one who delivered you. It's meant to be positive. Now, remember... People oftentimes, because some of you are thinking in your minds, Jesus and the Pharisees and what they did with Sabbath, oftentimes something good is turned into something bad, and that definitely happened. It's turned into, turned into some kind of legalistic thing. Jesus will correct the leaders, and he will say in Mark 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You guys are abusing people in the name of Sabbath. It was meant to be good for people, not oppressive. 
you've turned it into the exact thing that it's never meant to be. One more question with lots of answers regarding Sabbath. You ready to get controversial? What's the Christian's relationship to the Sabbath? Hmm. Got several answers to the question. Um, I'm going to say Christ fulfills the legal requirements because Christ fulfills the law. So it is a legal requirement for them. Christ fulfills the legal requirements of the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 11, remember Jesus has come to me and I will give you what? I will give you Sabbath. I will give you rest. They're weary. They're trying to keep the law and then they're trying to keep the pharisaical laws. You know what? Really you need to turn to me, the one who fulfills all righteousness. Any and all legal obligation is met by Christ. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 would affirm this. Christ fulfills the legal requirements. So I would say Christ is our ultimate Sabbath. So I'm not afraid of Sabbath because ultimately anything I might miss wanting to be a Sabbath observer, let's say Christ is our rest. We just go spiritually. We go, don't have to be afraid. I would also like to answer that question. What's the relationship uh, to the, of the Sabbath to the Sabbath, the Christian to the Sabbath, Sabbath to the Christian. You get the idea, even though I can't get my words out right. Our final ultimate Sabbath rest is also certain and secure in Christ, so much so that the Bible speaks of it in past tense terms. Hebrews 4, we won't take the time to go there, but we have an ultimate rest. If you want to use the fancy theological term, there's a final eschatological rest, an end times rest, the eschaton, the end. When we study eschatology, we're studying the end. There's a final eschatological rest. You don't need to know that to go to heaven. But you should know (laughs) that Christ has secured that final rest where we don't struggle anymore. We don't struggle with sin anymore. We see Christ and we're made like him. There's the ultimate rest that we will enter into. And it's sure Hebrews is warning people who are thinking about leaving Christianity. That if you leave Christianity, there's no final eschatological rest. But you can enter into that rest by trusting in Christ. The only way. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1. The promise of entering His rest still stands. Verse 3 of Hebrews 4. We who have believed enter that rest. It's already a sure thing even though we haven't experienced it yet. For who? Believers. We want the rest. It's sure in Christ. I'll answer it one more way. Maybe two. What's our relationship to the Sabbath? I would say my understanding would be in principle, it still stands. Not the same way it's applied to Israel. They're going to have all kinds of complications and all kinds of specifics tied to them as a nation. But as a Christian, I'm not free to not gather with the saints. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says we shouldn't neglect the assembling together of ourselves as is the habit of some. So I gather with you out of obligation (laughs) and joy 
because I know it's what's good and I know it's what's right and I need to set my other things aside to gather with the people of God and have a special day of focusing on the word of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that's an option. If you read 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, I've, I've lost track and lost memory of how many times he says, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, he just says it over and over again to celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. So I, I, I it's, church is not optional for me. And you say, well, you sound like you're a Sabbatarian. Well, in principle, it looks a lot different. But as a Christian, I, I need to gather with the people of God. And it's a priority. And, and I'm going to say no to other things. And then maybe one final way to answer the question. We'll get things wrapped up regarding the Christian's relationship to the Sabbath, even though it looks different. Christians observe last day of the week. I say first day of the week. And Christians historically have gathered and our Sabbath, Lord's Day, is not the last day of the week, but the first day of the week because it's when Jesus was raised from the dead. And theologically, I think it makes sense and others have gone before us have made the point we rest because of Christ, we rest first and then we do work because we're resting out of security and assurance. I wouldn't die on that hill, but it is my opinion, and I would be in really good company over it. How we do this, lots of things have to do with conscience, lots of different opinions, but I'm committed to gathering with the people of God, sometimes even when I don't want to. It's a priority for us. I think we are going to see more about the Sabbath as it relates to Israel, Israel in particular in the days ahead. But I think what we need to do for today would be do one more. Looking at my wife, she's the wise one of the family now. <laughs> I think we're going to save the next one for next time. But maybe if I can just set it up a little bit. Honor your father and mother. And then he's going to get into issues that have to do with adultery and sexual deviancy. And next week we'll talk about how so many of these things actually are natural law. So many of these things are natural law, common sense things. And now they're codified, written down for Israel as unique and special law. But we're going to see that these things and natural law scholars would say this very same thing and the historic confessions would say the very same thing. These were laws before they were ever in the Ten Commandments. These were things that are true before they were ever written down in the Ten Commandments. Even unbelievers can figure out that these things are true. You know what? Cultures are better off when children respect the authority of their parents. Children are better off when they have parents who will care for them. These are things that are common sense things. Even when we get to adultery, plenty of people who haven't been Christians have come to the conclusion, you know what, it's good when there's faithfulness in marriage. And it's stated as adultery just to get our attention. Later, he gets into the weeds, if you will, Exodus does, to talk about other forms of sexual deviancy. And you know what? Before it was ever in Exodus, 
or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy or Romans. It's built in the fiber of natural law, Allah, Romans chapter 2. People know what's right. An atheist unbeliever could take a biology class and study the history of civilization and conclude that gay pride month doesn't make sense. That would just be natural law. Study biology, study the history of civilizations, and you'll say that doesn't lead to human flourishing. That doesn't lead to good things happening. It's actually built in natural law before it's ever codified in the Ten Commandments or from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to talk about next time. These are good things. They're right things. They're not good news to sinners because I'm a lawbreaker and so are you. But we'd better know that we're sinners or we'll never look to a substitute who can forgive us of our sins. Looking forward to time together next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. We're thankful for the church. We're thankful for men and women who pray. We're thankful for missionaries. We're thankful for the fact that we have opportunities to proclaim the law of God and to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.